Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, a Texas court has told Alex Jones to pay some $49 million in damages for his perverse accusatory talk about the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre being a big hoax. The jury evidently not believing Jones's tale that he was suffering a weird and weirdly profitable psychosis when he told his followers that no one died at Sandy Hook because none of the victims ever existed. Nor were jurors evidently moved by Jones's subsequent claim that he did it all from a pure place. Jones, as the Hearst, Connecticut media editorial board noted in a strong statement, is trying to keep any mention of his white supremacy and right-wing extremism out of the Sandy Hook case he's now facing in New Hampshire. Because, his lawyer in that case says, that discussion would be unfairly prejudicial and inflammatory. An attack on Jones's character that would play to the emotions of the jury and distract from the main issues. What should be the main issues when our vaunted elite press corps engage a figure like Alex Jones? We'll talk with Angelo Corazon, president of Media Matters. Also on the show, in 1991, on the fifth anniversary of the Chernobyl nuclear plant accident, an editorial in the Minneapolis Star Tribune concluded, Despite Chernobyl, nuclear energy is the green alternative. The Houston Post enjoined readers, Let's not learn the wrong lesson from Chernobyl and rule nukes out of our future. Corporate news media have been rehabilitating nuclear power for as long as the public has been terrified by its dangers. Sometimes as heavy-handedly as NBC in 1987, running a documentary, Nuclear Power, in France it works, that failed to mention that NBC's then-owner, General Electric, was the country's second-largest nuclear power entity and third-largest producer of nuclear weapons. Now, in Russia's war on Ukraine, we're seeing news media toss the possibility of nuclear war into the news you're meant to read over your breakfast. Has something changed to make the unleashing of nuclear weaponry less horrific? And if not, what can we be doing to push it back off the table and out of news media's parlor game chat? We'll hear from author and journalism professor Carl Grossman. That's coming up this week on Counterspin. Counterspin is brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. A Texas jury levied $45 million in punitive and $4 million in compensatory damages against Alex Jones on behalf of the parents of Jesse Lewis, a six-year-old, one of the 26 people whom Jones insisted to his followers, not once but over and over again, were not shot to death at Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012 because they never existed. Their mourning families really paid scammers 
faking grief in a ploy to take away gun rights. Responses to the verdict included both reporting calling it a punishing salvo in a fledgling war on harmful misinformation and headlines declaring Alex Jones isn't sorry and won't change. A reflection of the fact that the Alex Jones phenomenon involves more than the particular piece of work that is Jones, but also the array of people who platform and profit from his actions. Angelo Carson has been tracking right-wing media machinery for some time. He is president of Media Matters, and he joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Angelo Carson. Thank you. Well, before this trial, as he tried to forestall it, Jones at one point called one of the Sandy Hook family's lawyers, called for the lawyer's head on a pike. Uh, And then after the verdict, he was back on his show saying that it was all an attack on him by globalists. Alex Jones learning anything was probably never on the table. Um, But did we, did you learn anything new about Jones or his operations from this trial? I think we knew that he was making a lot of money. What we didn't know until the trial is that he, and this is, I think, what's really significant about it, is that he's making not just a lot of money, but he's doing some really shady things with it. So, for example... The estimates from their forensic analysis was that he has somewhere between 250 to $300 million in assets. Now, Jones would declare he's bankrupt, but when you start to unpackage that a little bit, what you'll find out is that there's a company which owns a lot of debt to Alex Jones called PKMG. He's the primary owner of it. And starting right when, these, when the buzzards started circling around Jones a couple of years ago, he began moving tens of millions of dollars, sometimes payments of $50 million, $60 million, to this company that now owed Alex Jones a debt itself. So it's pretty interesting. That, I think, is like just the financial part of this is interesting. I think if I were to sum it up, I would say the one thing we learned is that the scale of the revenue that he's made in this period of time, and then also that essentially – uh, it really and it confirmed that it really is much more of an infomercial at this point than it is, you know, a traditional type programming. Well, and you think when journalists are looking at it, follow the money is kind of a prime directive, right? You know, and here that would be uh, very interesting. And and then even the, you know, the business plan, if you will, uh, stoke anxiety and then sell survival gear at a hundred percent markup. That's not really a new plan, as it were. No, it's not. I mean, you know, the part that is interesting is that he's managed to convince and capture the attention of some very significant conservative donors. And that means that he has access to donations. You know, in addition to people buying his products, he solicits donations multiple times a day, a lot of times a day. But I mean, he's gotten pretty hefty Bitcoin donations from anonymous sources, upwards in the realm of $8 million. He got a big $8 million donation in May, a single one. But he's had other big ones of that scale over the last couple of years. And one of the donations that always jumps out to me is in the lead up to January 6th, this was in November, he was trying to secure a permit for a demonstration in D.C. This is before it was even organized. And somebody gave him a half a million dollar donation anonymously 
so that he could file for the one of the original permits that later ended up getting transferred over for that big January 6th event. So, you know, that part I think is novel and unexplored is just how much people are that are in this orbit are also willing to give him from a donations perspective. And once you get a few of those deep pockets, that gives you a lot of operational capacity. Well, and my general sense is that you think it's a mistake to focus overwhelmingly on sifting out what's special and specific about Alex Jones at the expense of seeing why and how his playbook, if you will, has been normalized both in the Republican Party and uh, through right-wing media. This is a story where the bigger picture really is is the story. Yeah, I think that's right, actually. If we were to have this conversation 10 years ago, I would say that Alex Jones is sort of an island onto himself. And, you know, occasionally Glenn Beck would steal some of his stuff and sort of launder it and sanitize it a little bit and do it on his Fox News show back then. But he was really sort of on an island onto himself. And one of the things that's different between then and now is that the content that Alex Jones says on a fairly daily basis is essentially mirrored and reflected through establishment Republicans and the traditional right-wing media. So, you know, the deep state notion, which is not controversial anymore, everyone says that uh, on the Republican side, that somehow there's some conspiracy inside government. Even now, more so with the Mar-a-Lago search warrant, that's an Alex Jones conspiracy. And just last night, you know, you know, Fox News was pushing this idea that there was this globalist meeting between Soros and Garland and Biden and all the, and these foreign prime ministers who decided that this was going to be the playbook to take out Donald Trump and subjugate America. That, that's conspiracy stuff that he was, he's been pushing. And then the last one is, you know, the right wing media, both talk radio and Fox, they've also been pushing this idea that the evidence was planted inside the safe in Mar-a-Lago. They don't even know what the evidence, they don't even know what what was planted, but they're already conjuring up a conspiracy. So that's very much what Alex Jones has peddled in. And now it is nearly indistinguishable from the traditional right-wing and conservative talking points. And I think that's the part that's significant about all this, is that the big players now are are doing Alex Jones. Everything is info worse. And that's basically what I would say. You know, I have to say, I thought that something would change in 2017 when Jones was in a custody fight with his ex-wife. And she said, I don't want my kids around this guy. You know, he's calling for people to have their necks broken. He said he wants Jennifer Lopez to be raped. You know, I just don't want my kids around him. And Alex Jones's lawyer at the time said that Jones is a performance artist, that he's playing a character. And to judge him by what he says on InfoWars, his lawyer said, would be like judging Jack Nicholson by his portrayal of the Joker in Batman. Now, I'm not naive, you know, I've been at this for a minute, but I have to say I was still surprised that after that, media went right back, not just right-wing media, but centrist, elite media, went right back to calling Alex Jones controversial, calling him bombastic. You know, even now it's weird to read that Jones acknowledges today that Sandy Hook happened, you know, as though we need to credit any particular relationship between what he says and reality. You know, I mean, I guess I hold some blame for not just right wing media, but so-called mainstream media for 
not at that point. Once he once his case was, I don't believe any of this, and and you'd have to be stupid to believe anything that I say. Why didn't mm-hmm. the picture of him change? Why didn't we start talking about him differently? And that's the part that I find so frustrating. And I think that it gets back to my, you know, I do what I do, and I'm glad you guys exist too. Is that you know there are some real problems with the way the news media has handled this, and they are reflective of deeper issues. They tend to privilege the right wing in a way that I think is ultimately destructive. And at the moment that he acknowledged that it was all an act, then I think he should be treated accordingly. And I, I, I was with you because at the same time that that story happened, let's not forget that Pizzagate was still fresh right. in the minds of so many of the Beltway media. Many of them used to frequent that pizza establishment in Washington, D.C. Alex Jones was one of the big drivers of the Pizzagate conspiracy, specifically the establishment that was targeted. And so I I thought, to your point, that when he made that argument and said that stuff, and it became so clear that that was his defense, that they would change their narrative because it would be juxtaposed with the reality of the experience that just happened. But it didn't. And, And Tucker Carlson gets the same pass, right? I mean... Uh, Fox News won a lawsuit just two years ago, uh, or a little more than that, where their defense was no reasonable person would believe the things that Tucker Carlson says. Uh, you know, and and yet the news media doesn't talk about him any differently either. And I think that this is part of the inertia that exists in the coverage. But what, in effect, it's not that I encourage them to debunk them all the time, but I do think that what they do is they they have a very limited set of boxes that they can apply to individuals. And they very rarely change those. You know, there are plenty of establishment individuals that get quoted and they're treated as Christian organizations or conservative when, in fact, they're officially designated hate groups. Right. So it is a deep problem in the news media that they both don't have the language. And when they do have the language, there's still so much inertia and hesitancy, I think, in shifting their coverage. I think there's a little bit of the right wing working the refs that ends up poisoning the coverage, too. That, that is a real problem. Well, I'm going to have to end it there, but we're absolutely going to pick it up again. We've been speaking with Angelo Corazon. He's president of Media Matters. They're online at mediamatters.org. Angelo Corazon, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. Seventy-seven years after the devastating atomic bomb attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres says, quote, the prospect of nuclear conflict, once unthinkable, is now back within the realm of possibility, close quote. It's being floated by Vladimir Putin as part of his warmongering in Ukraine and slipping with a disturbing lack of friction into media discussion, as when Britain's The Economist runs the headline, A New Era, Why the War in Ukraine Makes Nuclear Conflict More Likely. Has the annihilating power of nuclear weapons changed? Or has the public lost touch with it, in part due to corporate media that include mention of the possibility without talking about how to avoid it? Carl Grossman is professor of journalism at SUNY College at Old Westbury, columnist and author of numerous books, including Weapons in Space and The Wrong Stuff, the space program's nuclear threat to our planet. He's a longtime host of the show Enviro Close-Up and a board member of the Media Watch Group Fair. He joins us now by phone from Long Island. Welcome back to Counterspin, Carl Grossman. Hey, pleasure, Janine. Is reality 
different? Are nuclear weapons safer or more containable or somehow less nightmarish than when we feel what we feel thinking about hundreds of thousands of dead men, women, and children in Hiroshima and Nagasaki? It's far worse in terms of the power of nuclear weapons uh, today compared to the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, For example, uh, the Ohio-class submarines, which are built just across the Long Island Sound from where I'm speaking on Long Island, built in in Connecticut. And I'm just reading here from a... uh, an account in the National Interest, a a middle-of-the-road publication, which speaks of the Trident II missiles on these submarines having the speed when they re-enter the atmosphere of Mach 24, splitting up into eight independent re-entry vehicles with 100 to 475 kiloton nuclear warheads. In short, says the national interest, a full salvo from an Ohio-class submarine, which can be launched in less than one minute, could unleash up to 192 nuclear warheads to wipe 24 cities off the map. This is a nightmarish weapon of the apocalypse. Uh, I mean, without being hyperbolic, Nuclear war is uh, well. It's, it's global suicide. Uh, it, it's it's oh years ago. Uh, Robert Shear wrote a book with enough shovels, and this was some character who was involved in so-called civil defense, saying, "Well, with enough shovels, everybody could dig holes in the ground." And I mean that that was ridiculous then. Now it is uh, it, it is. Uh, I mean, the reality is is uh, is apocalypse. Right. And what I pointed to in the piece that I, I wrote for FAIR is that this very, very important treaty was put together uh, and passed, enacted by the United Nations in 2017. It took force last year. It's called the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And it could put the nuclear weapons genie back in the bottle. In the same way, in the 1920s, chemical weapons were put back after World War One, and it was realized by the world the horrific impacts of of chemical weapons. Uh, tens of thousands of soldiers killed by mustard gas and so forth. So there was a succession of treaties, and they've not been perfect, but basically chemical warfare. Uh, uh, hasn't existed the way it could have existed. And the same thing could occur with these nuclear weapons. Well, why is that treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons? First of all, I, I think you're going to talk about why many listeners might not have heard about it. But then also, uh, it has a, a primary difficulty, which is, you know, most of the world is calling for an effort to say never to nuclear weapons, but key players are not. Yeah, well, it was passed in the General Assembly, the treaty, by over 120 nations, and additional supporters exist today, but the so-called nuclear weapon states, the United States, Russia, China, 
France and the United Kingdom have not signed on, have not ratified this treaty. And without the nuclear weapons states signing on, the treaty, it doesn't provide thus for a a ban on nuclear weapons. They're they're not going to abide by it. And there we are. Uh, As to getting these nations to sign on, I feel that uh, and uh, an organization uh, which involves many peace groups from around the uh, the country, the Nuclear Ban Treaty Collaborative, believes that key media, uh, uh, the press, but as the coalition charges, the media are acting like the treaty does not exist. And I think, and and this this collaborative feels that if the press would do its work and inform people about the treaty, also about the nature of what nuclear war would mean these days, then maybe uh, these countries could be prodded to sign on to the treaty and the vision of the United Nations, which it goes way back at, you know, in the UN in terms of abolishing nuclear weapons. It was treaty, it was treaty one, resolution one, of the United Nations in 1946 to uh, abolish nuclear weapons. But in any case, back to media, they've been asleep. In in, in my piece, we cite the the Nexus News database of U.S. newspapers mentioning nuclear weapons over 5,000 times since, uh, this is in February, when Putin began talking about their possible use in the Russia's invasion of uh, the Ukraine. And as of last week, only 43 of those times included a mention of the treaty. And the great majority of of, of those 43 times were letters to the editor and opinion columns. Right. So not straight reporting, not the news reporting, you know, where they're actually talking about the possible use of nuclear weapons. They're not including in the same story where it could be meaningful that there is and has been an effort to prevent this from happening. And, and you know, uh, Carl, I just want to add, as I know that you've reported, it isn't just that the U.S., and that's where we live, and that's the country that we have our foremost concern with, it isn't just that the U.S. has not signed the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. The U.S. boycotts meetings, the U.S. pressures other countries not to sign There's a whole lot of story to tell there about the role that the U.S. plays in in obstructing, in fact, the world coming together to prevent the employment of these devastating weapons. Absolutely. The the pressure that's been applied by these nuclear by the nuclear weapon states, actually, not just our beloved country, uh, is enormous. What's happening now, instead of abolishing nuclear weapons is the United States has been involved in a mod- so so is Russia a modernization program to build bigger and and more deadly nuclear weapons i mean we're going backwards well the bulletin of atomic scientists really gave us warning they have this doomsday clock since 1947 and in 2020 it was uh, it pushed forward to 100 seconds to midnight, which the bulletin defines as nuclear annihilation. And the following year, 2021, stated, this is the closest it's been to midnight since 47, 
It stayed at 100 seconds to midnight, and uh, this year, before the invasion, again at 100 seconds to midnight. I, I mean, in, in my generation, I think I just finished co-authoring a book, Cold War Long Island, and I was asked by uh, my co-author, Chris Verger, who was a history professor, to join him in writing the book, because I covered as a journalist based on Long Island since 62, uh, many of these issues, what, how, how Long Island had all kind of uh, Cold War preparations, nuclear-tipped missile bases to shoot down uh, feared Soviet bombers heading to New York City. And furthermore, in the 50s, as a kid, in PS 136 in Queens, where I went to school, they gave us, uh, they gave all the New York City school kids dog tags to wear. And we did these duck and cover exercises. So here I was writing about all this, and then suddenly, I started writing the book a couple of years ago, suddenly we're not only in a new Cold War, but uh, it could become very quickly a hot nuclear war. And the kind of, of, of awareness that, I, I mean, I teach journalism and my students, not only did they not have the uh, the scary uh, uh, experience of wearing dog tags and, and fearing doomsday, but hardly any of them have seen Dr. Strangelove or even the, an excellent ABC film the, the day after about the, the consequences of, uh, of nuclear war. Often, the, you know, the word used these days is that certain things are of existential importance. Mm-hmm. Of anything is of existential importance. It's abolishing nuclear weapons and uh, avoiding a nuclear holocaust. And I, I use that, that word advisedly. And this collaborative, uh, in addition to the, the nexus findings, does an analysis of reporting on the treaty by the New York Times, by CNN, by uh, National Public Radio, and basically they're all out to lunch. They report plenty on on issues of, particularly now with Ukraine and Putin threatening and so forth, the possibility of nuclear war, but they don't mention, hey, we got this treaty, which can, if the nuclear weapons states would agree, of course, would avoid this horrific nightmare of, of, of nuclear war. We've been speaking with Carl Grossman. His recent piece, Why is there more media talk about using nuclear weapons than about banning them, can be found on FAIR.org. And you can also follow his work on CarlGrossman.com. Carl Grossman, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. A pleasure, Janine. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.